to the Jews that were believing in Jesus, he said, if you hold on to my teachings, if you live into my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the people said, huh, we are Americans. And we have never been slaves to anyone. But Jesus said, ah, but everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But those whom the sun sets free, they are free indeed. There's probably nothing that the Americans value and talk about more than we talk about freedom. Ours are the four freedoms, the Declaration of Independence. We have the statue over the harbor. Bring me your, what is it? Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. One wonders what kind of freedom these huddled masses will get when they come into a nation that is inundated with addictions whether to substance, to sex, to shopping, to labor. We have more stuff than anyone in the world, and yet we are further in debt. And that doesn't feel like freedom. We have more choices, yet we're paralyzed by choice. We can marry whomever we want, yet half of our marriages end in divorce. Our children can become whatever they want, yet a record number do not know what they want. Our technology has freed up hours, and yet we have no margins. <laughs> so, so, to those that are yearning to breathe free, maybe right next to their oath of allegiance, there ought to be sort of like a short course on the meaning of freedom. Uh, because it turns out that the greatest threat to freedom is freedom. Last week where we left the children of Israel, they had just come through the Red Sea. Remember that? Do you remember that? I know this is the second hour, and I know y'all come to watch, but do you remember that? Thank you. All right, here we go. Let me recap as much as I can. All the way back at the beginning of Exodus, you cannot understand deliverance until you understand the predicament. The situation that we were in as slaves in Egypt is that we were under the rule of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not just a person, it is a system. It is both a ruler and a complex web of traditions, beliefs, values, superstitions, rituals. They all sort of come together. And that system oppresses people. Egypt is then a land of anxiety, scarcity, striving, comparing, despair. 
It's why the brickyards of Egypt are so symbolic of what it is to live in slavery. Your reward for doing it well is you have to do more tomorrow. There is never enough. You never satisfy the system. And it is always somebody else that you're living for, not yourself or for God. This is slavery. And one can be a slave even in a free country. Yahweh one morning, I guess, remembers the covenant that he's made with our ancestors. And he rises to do battle with the Pharaoh. In a conflict of the gods, Yahweh versus Pharaoh, Yahweh destroys the gods of Egypt one at a time. That's what the ten plagues were. He was taking out the underpinnings of the entire system. The whole thing was suspect now. He leads his people into the wilderness. They come to a sea that they cannot cross. Pharaoh has brought his armies together. Israel is pinned in between Egypt where they left and their future where they cannot go. Yahweh tells Moses to hold his staff over the sea. As he does, a wind from the east begins to blow. We don't know by reading this in the original language whether the wind was really the wind or whether it was the breath of God. In fact, in chapter 15, when they sing about this, they call it the breath from his nostrils. It wasn't the wind at all. It was God's breath. Or it could have been the Spirit, because they're all the same word. As Moses holds forth his staff, it's either God's Spirit or God's breath, or it's just the wind. It starts to blow the water until it stands up like a wall on the right and on the left, And Israel, the people of God, marched through the sea on dry ground. Pharaoh, blind with power and rage, pursues them. Once Israel is on the other side of the sea, Moses turns around at the order of God, holds forth his staff again, and the walls of water collapse and drown the Egyptians, every last one of them, Not one survived. Even the Pharaoh is dead. Thanks be to God. Did you feel that last week? Did you? Now, on the other side of the sea, we'll discover what the real threat was all along. And it wasn't Pharaoh. Three days on the other side of the sea, the people of God run out of water. They start to complain. We're going to die. We don't have enough. They start complaining to the leader. The leader goes to God. 
God says, take a stick, throw it into the water. It will make the bitter water sweet, and you can drink it. Moses does what he's told. He finds the stick, throws it into the water. The water becomes sweet. The people of God drink it, and they're happy for now. Six weeks later, they've moved to another part of the desert called the Desert of Sin, appropriately named. And it's there where they run out of food. Now they have nothing to eat. Once again, the people of God say, you know what, it would have been better if we just would have died in Egypt because when we were in Egypt, we had all kinds of food. Man, we had the life back there. But here, you've brought us out here to kill us. Moses does not go to Yahweh. Yahweh overhears it and says to Moses, tell the people that I will give them food to eat. Every night before they go to bed, I'll give them meat, and every morning when they wake up, they'll have more bread than they could ask for. Sure enough, that night before they go to bed, there are quail lying on the desert floor. They've had all the quail that they want. And in the morning, there is fresh bread from heaven, manna, they call, what is it lying on the floor? So they have meat in the evening and bread in the morning, Chick-fil-A between the two of them. And they have this for the entire time that they are in the desert. And the people of God are happy once again. For now. A few weeks later, they move to another part of the desert called Rephidim, and there they run out of water. One more time, they go back to Moses and they say, we're about ready to die, only I think you brought us out here to kill not only us, but our sons and our livestock too. They're getting ready to stone Moses because they're afraid of running out of resources, Moses, at the end of himself, goes to Yahweh and for the first time complains and says what every leader has said at one time or another, what am I to do with these people? Yahweh says, walk out in front of them. Take your staff. Go out to the rock of Horeb. And once you're there, Strike the rock with the staff, and water will come out. Moses leads the people to the rock of Horeb. He strikes the rock. <laughs> Remember, he's mad. I got a feeling this isn't a tap. <laughs> he strikes the rock, and water comes rushing out. And the people have plenty to drink. And the people of God are happy once again for now. Here on the other side of the sea, you start to notice a pattern. It's a pattern of anxiety, scarcity, comparison. Would to God we had it like we did in Egypt It's a culture of despair. You've led us out here to kill us. And you start to wonder, 
if even after the people have left Egypt, if the culture of Egypt is still in the people. Here is where it occurs to you that the problem all along has never been Pharaoh. It's been the ghosts of Pharaoh. It's been the tendency or the inclination to live back in the way of slavery instead of forward in the way of freedom. It's the default of anxiety and fretting and despair and comparison and violence and scarcity because it just seems to be baked right in you. The problem was never Egypt. The problem was us. It was never that we lacked food. It was that we lacked imagination. We could not imagine a life where God provides and it's safe. So God leads his people to the base of Mount Sinai, chapter 19. What happens on Sinai is such a big deal that one-third of the whole first five books of the Bible is consumed on Mount Sinai. Let me say that in slow motion. From the first of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy is a span of about 2,700 years. Eleven months of that is Mount Sinai. And yet, one-third of the entire Pentateuch is spent on those 11 months. Why is that? Why the disproportion? I think it's because at Sinai, the momentum shifts from leaving Egypt to entering the promised land. Are you tracking? The story now moves from getting out to moving in. From this is a rescue to this is a relationship with the God who has rescued us. You can be set free from slavery and not be free. Independent, autonomous, self-invented, self-reliant, but not free. You're not free until you live into the thing God has designed you to be. And you practice that easily, willingly, consistently, without striving. You're not free until you can trust the way that you used to worry. And I don't leave you in 24 hours not even through a sea. So what happens at Sinai is God starts to make what's called in the Bible a covenant. It's basically an agreement. It's not a contract. It's a holy agreement wherein God says, I am this kind of person for you. I need you to be this kind of person for me. And if you are, we will be this together. He calls 
Moses to the base of the mountain. The people settle in for the night. Moses goes up the mountain by himself, and there God speaks to him. And this is what he says. Go tell my people that I have carried them out. I have brought them to myself. The language there in Hebrew means they are my personal possession. Now go tell them that if they will obey fully my commandments and keep them, they will be for me a prized possession. Even though the whole world belongs to me, these people will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's strange, isn't it? They aren't a nation at all. They're 600,000 ex-slaves. And Yahweh is calling them a holy nation. He is way ahead of them. So Yahweh says, go back down the mountain and tell them that's what I said. Moses goes back down the mountain and said, this is what Yahweh said. If you obey these things, you will be his prized possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people went, whoa, we will do everything he said. All right. So Moses goes back up the mountain, tells Yahweh. Yahweh says, go back down the mountain. You're getting this. He's getting his steps in. And tell the people in three days, I will come down on the mountain. And there I will speak to you in broad daylight in front of the people. Moses comes back down the mountain, tells the people, get ready. Yahweh said he's going to make his first appearance to you. He's going to come and land on that mountain. They have no idea who he is or what he looks like. Yahweh says if you get too close, he'll kill you. (laughs) Yahweh says that you don't put limits around it, you'll die. If one of your cattle walk onto the mountain, he'll die. Nevertheless, Yahweh told us to come to the mountain. Herein lies a paradox that anyone who has been in the presence of God for 10 seconds knows this is true. He is, at the same time, the most terrifying person you have ever met. And the most inviting, the most true, the most accepting person you have ever met. He is what one calls the awful mystery and fascination. When you are in his presence, you are terrified but you don't want to leave. On the third day, the people are ready. 
they come to the mountain. Yahweh comes down and lands on the mountain, and the mountain becomes an altar. There is fire, there is smoke, there is trembling. Whatever is happening up there is completely other. It is not of this world, and yet it is in this world. The voice from the mountain tells Moses to climb the mountain one more time. (laughs) Moses goes up, stands in the presence of Yahweh, and Yahweh says, tell the people to stay at a distance. And by the way, tell even the priests to not come near this mountain. There from the top of the mountain, Yahweh begins to utter words for the first time to his people. And now we understand what he was up to the whole time. This was never about getting people out of bondage. This was never about a miracle in the Red Sea. This whole thing was always about God forming a new nation around words like a covenant. A friend of mine has likened Mount Sinai to a wedding in which God chooses his bride. You are my prized possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then Yahweh comes down on the altar and summons the bride to come near the altar. And there on the altar or the mountain, he utters the vows of a covenant that define the marriage between Yahweh and his people. This will go for four chapters. And then in chapter 25, he will say, now come, let's go build a house so I can move in and live with my people. This is not just a scary day. This is God uniting himself with his people in the form of vows. No wonder Jeremiah would refer to these days and say, did you not as a young bride follow Yahweh through the desert? I thought that was a wandering. Jeremiah says it was a honeymoon. These are the vows. No other gods. And they are written in the shortest, most terse language in Hebrew. No others. No idols. No blasphemy. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. No killing. No adultery. No stealing. No lies. No duplicity. No coveting.
eight out of ten are in negative language. Why? If this, can, can you imagine saying that at your wedding? Do you have this person to be? No killing. No lying. Man, it'd be over right there. Why is he putting this in such terse language? Because all of these laws are what they came out of. If Yahweh is putting a fence up and saying you can't cross the fence, it's a fence that keeps you from going back to Egypt. He's simply trying to protect you from the bondage you just came out of. He's saying, in fact, if you do these things, you will not break them. You'll break yourselves against them. You'll end up becoming slaves of another kind of Egypt. You'll create your own Pharaoh, your own system, and you'll come under its oppression again if you break these rules this is where Jesus comes in one day Jesus goes up a mountain like Moses and he starts to speak of rules only he speaks of them in another level He says, unless your obedience is better than that of the past, you cannot live in the kingdom of God. You've heard Moses say that you cannot kill. I'm telling you, if you're angry with someone without a cause, if you start slurring someone, And you don't settle your differences. You just hold on to your grudges. It's like you've already killed them. You've heard that you cannot commit adultery. But what I'm saying is, if you lust after another person, whether body or relationship, you have already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard the Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, forgive your enemies. What Jesus is giving us, church, is a way of freedom. What he's giving us is the real meaning of the Ten Commandments. He's telling us the Ten Commandments were never there to prohibit something we love to do. They were there as a doorway into a life of freedom. And obedience is the way through the gate. So, when you hear Moses say, no other gods, you should hear the freedom to worship the one true God. You should hear freedom from fear that you might anger some other God because you have one God. And when you hear no graven images, you should hear the freedom 
to worship God everywhere, anywhere. Because as Jesus said, he's not just with you. He will be in you. You should hear the freedom to abide in your God while your God abides in you. And when you hear no blasphemy, you should hear the freedom to be reverent. The freedom to use the name of God, to call on the name of God, to do everything in the name of God. And when you hear honor the Sabbath, you should hear freedom from the tyranny of the urgent, the freedom to rest to be non-anxious, to quit striving, to pause even when the work isn't done. And when you hear, honor your mother and father, you should hear, you have the freedom to get old without losing your dignity. You are free to plant and build families with rich traditions and to pass those traditions down to your children. You are free to inherit and free to leave an inheritance. When you hear, you shall not kill, you should hear, you have the freedom to be weak and vulnerable without dying. You have the freedom to live without anger, to seek peace and pursue it, to forgive your enemies. When you hear, you shall not commit adultery, you should hear, you have the freedom to live with one other person in the way that the triune God lives within himself. The interpenetration of two personalities until they are one. You are free to give yourself to another and to belong to another for the rest of your lives. When you hear no stealing, you should hear you have freedom to own something. And you have the freedom to give something as much as you want and to be generous. When you hear no lying, you should hear you have the freedom to not walk on eggshells, to not wonder what you said. You have the freedom to live in honest, open, and transparent friendships where the truth is a virtue and not a weapon. When you hear no coveting, you should hear you are free to be content 
You don't have to fear missing out. You can settle down in the life you have right now and be content right there. You don't have to strive and compare what you have with your neighbor until you are always restless. If you are not content with the life you have, you won't be content with the life you want. So you are free to settle down now without waiting and be grateful. Where did we ever get the idea that these were laws? They are never called this. These are invitations to a wide and spacious land. And the way in is obedience. Would you bow your heads? Where do you find freedom the hardest? Which one of those freedoms is hardest for you? Where have your wants, your desires, not yet been changed? Maybe you've convinced yourself that it's okay to want something as long as you don't do it. But what I hear in Jesus' words is an invitation to have even the wants transformed. So where are the wants in you the most enslaved? I'm going to invite you in a moment once you have discovered that place. Is it in your worship? Is it in the name? In the truth? Is it in your sexuality? Is it in your anger? In your needing, grasping? Where are you asking God to transform the wants?